Hey everybody, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jonathan. We are the Evangelicals. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Today we are going to be diving into two scripture passages that are really important to Jeremy and I, one that's really important to him and one that's really important to me. Jeremy's in the New Testament and he's going to start off today. Yeah, I think that one that helps uh, as a pastor, if you're ever somewhere or you have a Q&A, if you do that as a pastor, sometimes with people, yeah. they always ask you, what's your favorite Bible passage? Yep. And I actually just did one. Sometimes I have a student um, who's at Bowling Green and had to do a video for a class and the video had to be interviewing somebody. Uh-huh. She asked me, and one of the questions was, What's your favorite Bible story or your favorite Bible passage? And so it's it's a question I get asked a lot. And I always seem to come back to this passage. It, it seems to to really hit me again and again and again. And uh, so I'm just going to read it and then talk a little bit about yeah. what, what it hits me. And then we'll see where it goes from there. But it's found in Philippians chapter 3. Um, and Paul is in prison uh, writing the book of Philippians. But he, he writes, he's writing to a church and he kind of goes on this rant. And I love it because I usually often say that it's kind of like a, a smackdown rant. Like you want to brag about who you are, but I'm just going to tell you I'm, I'm better. And, and so he kind of just throws down. Um, maybe it was the first rap off or something. I don't know. But he, he goes into this dialogue about, you want to brag? Well, I am a Benjamite and from the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee. Uh, as far as zeal, I persecuted the church. And, and so he kind of just gives this litany of things about how he is better than whatever anybody from the church is going to bring to them. And then he goes on, and this is where um, really picks up and, and really tries to hit me. Um, so I'm going to pick, start reading in verse number seven of Philippians 3. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage or rubbish, um, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And I think one of the reasons I love this is I feel like sometimes, maybe not just, but I feel like especially sometimes in our tribe and our history, we, we've kind of become, or we kind of were, um, we often thought of ourselves as better than others. Yeah. Be- because of our doctrine, because of we were holy people, we believed in the holiness doctrine. And it be- kind of became, and we've talked about it before, but this legalistic understanding. And I feel like when legalism starts to slip into um, our our life starts to slip into our ideology, our thoughts about how the world works. We can start to get this real pious understanding of who we are. 
and and we start to think, well, I don't do that, or I at least I don't go to those places, or at least I don't talk like that, or and and we can start to have a warped understanding of of who I am in Christ and understanding that that all those things, no matter where I come from, no matter what my family life was like, no matter where I find myself doesn't do anything for my salvation and my heart and my understanding of who Jesus is and who he wants me to be. And so Paul says, that's all garbage. Like it, it's just got to get tossed aside if I'm really going to understand who who Christ has made me and how he wants me to live. And and so when he says all that stuff just gets thrown away, um, because what's really, I just want to know Christ. I just want to know Jesus and, and, and the way that we know him, once again, is he, he really hits on through suffering, through his death, so that we can then be resurrected from the dead. And, and then once again, just to, to, to kind of sum it all up, and then he says, not that I've already obtained all this. And I think that is, once again, just good for my soul to, uh, to remember that I've still got things, areas in my life I need to grow in. I still have things that I need to work on that I haven't arrived. And that kind of goes back to, to that Nazarene thing that we've arrived in, in a lot of People look, uh, a lot of our, our critique in, in history, and maybe even some today, is you people just think you're perfect, and uh, and and you 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 don't sin, and you're above, and uh, above whatever, above, above sin. And uh, so for me, it's a great reminder that that I haven't arrived, but I'm, I'm continually, hopefully continually, daily pressing to learn more, to be more, to grow more, to be like Jesus, more tomorrow than I am even today. The thing I love about Paul's teaching is he says he says a lot of of statements that he's being very serious about how um, how extremely he follows Christ and how uh, he he takes on the cross of Christ. And when we read the words of Paul, I don't think that we assume about ourselves that we can live to the level that Paul lives. But what Paul is wanting us to do is, as he says in another place in his letters, is follow my example as I'm following the example of Christ. I mean, Paul really believes that because of what is, because of what Jesus has done, the, the possibilities of holiness and of uh, really the, the spiritual life, the possibilities are endless. They're positive. They're, they're amazing. Um, But you don't, you don't gain those through uh, credentials, academic credentials, credentials in the church, but it's because of what Jesus has done. And he, what he's really trying to say there is, you know, I have a lot of credentials, but these are not the things that are, have formed me into the character of Christ. I put this passage in conversation with the passage a chapter earlier, where he says, uh, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, the kenosis passage who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. Richard Rohr teaches about that passage, the difficulty of emptying oneself, of even one negative thought. He talks about how difficult that, that is for anyone in uh, trying to pursue a life of um, spiritual development. But what Paul, what Paul suggests to us is that the Christ life is one of disregarding the merits that the world holds to be really, really important. I think that's difficult, you know, especially in, in the climate we find ourselves in, and I th- especially in our culture that preaches individualism and being better and, and, 
And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but we always have to hold it in contrast to a God who says, no, you need to become nothing so that I can then be born again in your life. You need to empty yourself as you're saying. Um, and I think that that's the something that the people of God, once again, have struggled with since the beginning is, is am I going, am I going to live for myself? Am I going to live for the things that that really get me excited, or am I going to live for the kingdom of God? Which Paul once again talks about um, this new creation. He loves that that word about old things passing away. Behold, all things have become new, yes. which lends itself to John three and this whole being born again. And Nicodemus didn't understand it, and so I, I think that every person, if you're really going to allow Jesus to shape you and form you and mold you. You're going to have these moments continually where you are going to either live for yourself or you're going to try to live and be who Jesus is calling you to be. And and, and so how you see, how you talk, how you interact, um, and I think it's it's all across the spectrum. Like there's not just one thing like 1030 or 11 or whenever your church meets, like that's not the time that you say, okay, now I'm going to do the Jesus thing. I think it's holistic understanding of how do I perceive, how do I see um, and and how does it cause me to be different because I'm trying to die to those old things, die to the past, and strain towards what is ahead and what Jesus is calling me towards? Well, I really think in our, in our modern Christian culture, I really think we hear these words as lovely hyperbole. I don't, I don't know that we, in modern evangelicalism, in Christianity in North America, I don't know that we believe that it's possible to actually die to ourselves and take up the cross of Christ. I remember being in a Christian college in a theology class where a professor said, you know, I don't know how possible it is to really not live for oneself. And I just remember thinking to myself, you know, if it's not possible, then we should throw out Paul's letters and we should take edit some of Jesus' sayings in the Gospels, you know, because, I mean, the, the heart of Christianity is this idea that, hey— if you unite yourself with Christ, you really can do away with your selfish ambition. You really can, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by by the Spirit's guiding, live a God-centered life that's not a you-centered life, which is diametrically opposed to the way that our culture is teaching us to live these days. I think it even comes up in, in church culture, and I know that you think, oh, you're a pastor. What 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 would you be having to live up to or live for? And unfortunately, sometimes um, I, I always tell people and that that sometimes when you go to an assembly or you go to a general assembly or you go to a, a conference and you hear about all the things these other churches are doing and you sit there and think, yeah, but we're not doing that. And you kind of get this. You can get a complex if you're not careful. That, that you aren't truly doing all that God is wanting you to do because your church isn't growing exponentially and you're not bringing in more money and you're not doing all these things. So this is a, a, a reminder. This passage, once again, brings me back to that my first love is always just to love Jesus with my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that the pastor thing is secondary. It's always got to bow to I have to remember that first love. Um, that all those things, even pastoring a big church or a small church or and having numerical growth that has to surrender to me truly understanding that that my main 
the main thing that I have to have in my life is I just want to know Jesus. I just want to be more like him. And if I'm doing that, I believe I'll be a better pastor and a better husband and a better dad as I am learning to fall in line with who Jesus is calling me to be. That's interesting that you say that. I, For me, as a personal spiritual discipline, I take inventory monthly and ask myself this question, what have I done for the Lord this week that no one knows about? Because as a pastor, it's very easy to do things in the name of Jesus, sure. to do Christian churchy things so that you can be seen by other people because there's, amount of jo- there's an amount of job security in that. If everybody sees me out on the front lines giving myself to the cause of the gospel, then, um, then I'm embraced by the community more and they love me more and they want to support me and they'll probably give me more money and this kind of thing, which really, in my read of Jesus, that's gaining the whole world but forfeiting your soul. Yeah. That's, that's doing things in the name of Christ really for personal benefit because you know you're going to get a pat on the back. Um, but for my own spiritual development... I am constantly asking myself the question, what have I done for Jesus? What have I done for an orphan or for a widow or for someone that was hungry, someone that was thirsty, someone that was in need of encouragement, in need of help that nobody found out about? And for me, because I am in the profession of Christianity, because I am a pastor of a church and that's where I get my income from, uh, that's that's really been my accountability because it uh, being a pastor in one sense i i really do think uh can jade your soul can make you can make you incredibly selfish can make you want to take advantage of the call of christ for personal gain and it's a um it's a dangerous calling to be to be a pastor in that sense it can be very self-glorifying yeah, and I think that you – I think that as you walk as a pastor, I think that also it can spill out into other other vocations or jobs. We talked about the one uh, – the Bond podcast a few few episodes ago that, that even – where does our identity come from? And I think that yeah. Paul is trying to really hit on that my identity is in the crucified Christ. My identity is in the suffering – and only when my identity is wrapped up in 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 that self emptying life can I then be resurrected to the only life that Jesus can give. And and so, like I said, I feel like every person at some point is going to have to make, I think, a decision, which will lead to multiple other decisions, yeah. and to live to be the holy life that I think that God's calling us to, and. And how do we respond in each of those situations as Jesus potentially would respond rather than what brings me glory, what brings me praise? And and I think it is just a huge um, temptation to, to, to let people know what you are doing because you want people to feel like, oh, it's worth it having him here. <laughs> you want to feel validated, I think personally, but you also want the church people to think, you know, he he is doing a lot that that it validates my my calling here, or the people yeah. bringing me here on some level to be their pastor, and it can be a trap that is a, a very deadly trap for sure. One of the things that's interesting to me about our wealthy, affluential, middle class, upper middle class 
evangelical Christian bubble that we live in is a recently popular idea and teaching of self-care that has really become very, very popular. I'm hearing more and more people talking about self-care. I have two thoughts about self-care. One of them is if we're, if we're, Talking about self-care because we realize that we've completely neglected the Sabbath, I am all about self-care. Sure. So, like, if you're running a rat race of seven days a week and are not resting and spending time with God and in cessation doing nothing as an act of thanks for God's abundance in our life, if we're not doing that, then we must get back to self-care. But I don't hear people talking about self-care in the sense of... Um, a lack of Sabbath and trying to get back to a biblical practice of Sabbath weekly. When I hear people talking about self-care, I hear entitlement language. I hear people, I hear people in the church, good Christian people saying, you know, I, I, I deserve this or I need to be taking care of myself. And quite honestly, you're not going to find any language of self-care in the New Testament None of the members of the early church that were writing down their experiences or Jesus um, were talking about self-care in the sense of I've been working so hard. I've been busting it so hard. I deserve, you know, time for myself. Jesus got away to spend time with his father, you know? Yeah. Um, Kind of the ultimate form, I think, of self-care for him. And, uh, but, but really, if you think about the idea of crucifying yourself, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ in another place. In Galatians 2, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. I mean, that's about as anti-self-care as you can possibly get. Essentially, I'm putting down all of my entitlements. I'm not thinking about how I deserve to receive from the abundance of the gospel, but I have lost myself in it. I give myself up completely. Yeah, and Brueggemann, Walter Brueggemann, speaks about Sabbath as a way to to show empire it isn't what's guiding our lives. Sabbath as resistance is his Sabbath line. as resistance. And and Abraham Joshua Heschel, the great rabbi, said that Sabbath is a way for us to sanctify not just the physical, but also the understanding of sanctifying time. Yeah. And 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 so it's Sabbath is a reclaiming of this is what my life is about because for six days of the week I get beat up or I get told one thing by empire or by culture and I need a day to get away from that and unplug. And so Sabbath, I, you're exactly right, was not something I deserve, but it's something I need. And when It reorients I, me. Exactly It right. crucifies my life. Right. And, and, and so I think that as we journey through as pastors, once again, to have that perspective of oh, I deserve for me to take Thursdays and do nothing. It's like, no, I need Thursdays to remind myself that I can not be plugged into this and the world is still going to keep spinning. <laughs> like if the world isn't based on, or the world spinning is not based on me doing what I am doing right. for the people that I'm doing it right. for. That God is the one who is ultimately making all those things happen and I'm just a part of what he's doing in the world. Which I think takes us back to the beginning of the passage where Paul says all of these things, all of these titles mean nothing. And something that's really stuck with me that as I've tried to to live and be a pastor and do all the things that God has called me to do is to remember that those titles, those things aren't, um, aren't as important as sometimes we want them to be in our own life. And I'm, I'm reminded yeah. of a professor, one of my favorite professors at Trebekah, 
who was one maybe probably the smartest person I've ever met in my life, you know, could knew five languages and, and was just brilliant, awesome preacher. Um, and had every right in the world to be called Dr. Green all day long. And, um, whenever you'd ask him, Hey, what do you, what do you mean call you professor doctor? And he would just always respond with the most simple answer. And he would just say, just call me Tim. Just call me Tim. That's who I am. That's how God sees me. He's like, and then he would always say, God doesn't have any prefixes before his name. So why should I be concerned about those things as well? So like I said, I think this passage all wraps back up into this, where do I, where do we find our identity in Jesus and who he's calling us to be and in his death and resurrection or in what the world looks at me and sees. And um, so that's why that passage means a lot to me and something I always come back to again and again and again. Um, what about you? When when asked the same question, uh, what's your favorite passage or what's the most important passage to you? It's a passage uh, in Joel, the prophet Joel. It's the passage that Peter cites on the day of Pentecost in yeah. Acts chapter 2. And the more I read the Bible, uh, the prophets, the Gospels, and the New Testament, the more this this passage from Joel just stands out to me as really, really important. It starts in uh, Joel chapter 2, verse 28, uh, or a couple of verses earlier than that. Uh, this is the, the description of the terrible day of the Lord, the, the great terrible day of the Lord, as Joel is famous for describing this great disaster of the day of the Lord. Uh, but, then, but then God turns and he says this. He says, I will repay you for the years consumed by swarms and hoppers, by grubs and locusts. The great army I let loose against you, and you shall eat your fill. And praise the name of the Lord your God, who dealt so wondrously with you. My people shall be shamed no more. And you shall know that I am the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord, I am your God. And there is no other. And my people shall be shamed no more. After that, so the afterward, after that, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. I will even pour out my spirit upon male and female slaves in those days, and they will prophesy. I love that passage because the prophet foresees a day when this strange thing is going to happen, where God is going to pour out his spirit on all of the earth in a magnificent way. And Peter at Pentecost, having experienced the resurrection of Jesus, he stands up and he says, you guys, this is what Joel was talking about. Yeah. This is huge. And what the early church does throughout the rest of the book of Acts and a lot of the books of Paul is they try to figure out how Jewish do we remain and how do we, how do we kind of put parameters on this new thing that God is doing in the world? And what does the early church do then? They come up with all of these creeds and these doctrines and these systems of belief and catechism and then the hierarchy of structure in the church, right? And they create a religion, Christianity, that has in our time, again, become exclusive, become small, become divided by hemispheres in our world, you know? And but what God promised in Joel is he promised that he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. 
Uh, we were having a conversation about the Me Too movement a couple episodes ago, which in some ways I see as a movement of God in the world, of God's spirit to release particular people that are oppressed. Martin Luther King Jr., yeah. he stood on the steps um, of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, and he said, I have a dream today. I think that speech was very much in conversation with the prophet Joel, sure. that one day in the last days, God's going to pour out his spirit in such a way that the unexpected people are going to have dreams and visions and the world's going to start changing and it's going to start changing at a rapid pace because the spirit of God is going to be unleashed in powerful ways. To me also, this is why I am particularly committed to being a part of a movement of God, uh, the Church of the Nazarene, who really is a, a denomination that says, hey, we are open to the moving and the leading of the spirit of God. Now I realize we have not always been as open as we ought to be. And when I say open, I'm not talking about like the LGBTQ issue or whatever open is means in the political sense. I mean open to the possibilities of God in this world. Sure. That God might move. That that God might speak to me that, that is in a way that is different than the cultural norms that I've received. I, I, I just think about, I think about stories in the Bible. I think about the story of Samuel. This is one of my favorite stories and one of the most troubling stories in the Bible. Samuel, First uh, Samuel 3 opens with, um, with this line, dreams and visions were rare in those yeah. days. And so Samuel is sleeping in the temple and he hears this voice, Samuel, Samuel, he runs to the priest Eli and he says, I'm here, right? You know this story. Eli says, I'm not talking to you, go back to bed. They do this back and forth for a while. And then Eli realizes something. He realizes, you know what? This voice that is talking to, that is talking to Samuel, it actually might be the voice of God. God might be revealing his spirit in a precise way right now to this young boy. Well, there's, and so, one, there's one line though that, that I think is key too. It says something about the lamp of God had not gone out yet. Oh, that's right. <laughs> the that's lamp right. of God had not. And then it gets into the story of, and it's almost like it took Eli three or four times to realize that it was God's voice. And and so, but like I said, I love that line. You're right. People didn't dream dreams or, you know, it has that. But then it says, but the lamp of God had not yet gone out. It was still burning. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah. But I think it's a key piece to that whole story for sure. Well, I mean, really, that's, yeah, to the, to the point, God's presence had not left Israel. Right. Completely. So, so Eli instructs Samuel to go back to sleep and, and Eli tells Samuel, the next time you hear the voice, tell the Lord to speak to you. And so the Lord speaks to Samuel again. And Samuel says this beautiful line, speak Lord, your servant is listening. I grew up believing that we were living in the last days. I don't know if I've told you this story. When I was in camp as a 12-year-old at church camp, uh, they were talking a lot about the tribulation. They were talking about the rapture. This is pre, pre-Y2K. <laughs> and so- Way back. And so the, in the late 90s, the, 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 the book series came out, uh, Left Behind series came out, and everybody's talking about this stuff. DC Talk had on one of their EPs of Jesus Freak, that Larry Norman song, Left Behind. Wish we'd all been ready. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wish we'd all been ready. The, the sun is coming. Yeah, you've been And if we on. would have had cell phones back then, we would have waved them, but we oh, still yeah. had lighters. Oh, we still yeah. Had lighters. yeah. 
Well, so I was at church camp when I was 12 and um, we all woke up one morning and the clothes of our counselors were spread across the floor. No way. Jeremy, there's no. like a hundred kids and only two counselors had been left behind. And so these two counselors tell us how they were terrible sinners. No, this really happened, man. I'm, I'm telling the truth. I'm sorry. No, this really happened. And, and the, uh, the, the two counselors that said, you know, we've sinned. We actually really weren't Christians. Um, it, it actually didn't work when we asked Jesus into our hearts. We're, we're frauds. They took us all to the tabernacle where they and 112-year-olds started strategizing how we were going to make it through the tribulation. <laughs> Pretty soon, dressed in white, all of the other counselors came out from the back and they said, hey, just kidding. The tribulation didn't actually – hasn't actually begun but it might begin soon, so you should all get saved. And I remember, I remember thinking to myself, "This is not this. This is not a movement of the Spirit of God. Sure, this is a hoax." But to me, in my lifetime, in my lifetime, when we've talked about the end of times, when we've talked about that's how we've talked about it. Sure, in this scary apocalyptic way that, like, that that the devil is going to win, that the devil is going to take over this world. Jesus is going to come, going to take all of the good people out of it, and then the devil is just going to have free reign. But when I read the Bible, I just don't see that story. What God says in the prophet Joel is the afterword is very different than that. The afterword is that God is going to pour out his spirit in a way that has never been seen before. That uh, there's going to be equality of speech. Men and women are going to prophesy. I can't handle these evangelical Christians who say women aren't allowed to preach. That's just not biblical. It's not biblical. I understand there was a moment when Paul said women don't talk in the church. He was talking to a particular church at a particular time for particular reasons, which we're not going to talk about on this podcast. Sure. But when the, as I read the story of Scripture, end times are when God's rule and reign are coming about in all different corners of the world. Which Revelation 21 talks about. Oh, come on. Yes. New creation, earth, heaven crashes to earth in a big and a powerful way. And, and, and then it has the line, and my dwelling will be among the people yes. again. Which is, to me, uh, a throwback to the God, Old and Testament they will be my people, and the tabernacle. The I will yes. tabernacle among them again, amongst them again. And I will, yes, they will be my people. I yes. will be their God. And yeah, and I, I love... Obviously, I love this passage too, and it's so appropriate and interesting um, that for Ash Wednesday every year, this passage is read. And if you think about what Ash Wednesday is, is the day that kicks off the season of Lent, which is a calling back, which is a a we've we've potentially been formed by the world the rest of the year. Yes, let's take forty days to fast and to reignite, reengage, realign our lives. So that, and once again, die to those things maybe that have crept in so that when we celebrate resurrection, we can actually be resurrected in our life. And so the whole season of Lent gets kicked off, which is once again, so appropriate because that's how the new church, or the you know, the, the first church when Peter busted out of Pentecost was this rebirth of this understanding of who God was yes. and how he was going to act which to me, the Eastern narrative, once again, is all about, because I think it ties into eschatology, which is the study of end times, what's happening in the resurrection of Jesus. And so we start that season by saying, call everybody, sound the the shofar, sound the trumpet, 
Um, and, and let's remember that when God's spirit is poured out on all people, this is how we're going to know and understand that this is happening, that the people will dream, that people, old people will see prophecies. But once again, I love how it includes old and young, male and female, because it's not a this group or that group. It's, a, it's all of us. Um, and, and we're all going to be a part of the move of God and the spirit that is moving amongst us in a powerful way, in a big way. Well, and this passage is convicting to me, as the other one that you mentioned is, as a pastor, particularly because I don't have a monopoly on the gospel. Right. I don't have all of the revelation of God. I'm not a pastor to my congregation telling them the exclusive truth all the time. What I am is I'm called to be a director hopefully cultivating an environment where young people can hear the voice of God and where they can in turn know to say, as Samuel was instructed to say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. I mean, imagine a world as Joel describes yeah, where young people are dreaming dreams and having visions from God and living out God's actions in the world. That is the kingdom of God. And I think that what... What's so interesting is when Samuel says, speak, your servant is listening. And then he goes to see Eli again. Eli says, tell me everything you said, even if it's a bad word for me. And I, it was. It was terrible because it was about how his his family was going to fall. Yes. And they were not going to succeed his father as the judge of Israel or the priest or his yeah, right. role. And I think that when the spirit moves, I think we we see it most clearly when there's an honesty among God's people that says, I need to hear the prophecy. I need to hear the word, even if it's a bad word for me, because then and only then can I respond to the call of the kingdom, to the call of, of what it means to be the people of God. And, and so there's an openness. There's an openness to receive whatever word God may have for us. And right now it seems that that we aren't as open maybe as as maybe we have been in the past. But I think every great revival is people who are open, they're confessing, they are walking in that understanding of saying, okay, God, convict me, tell me exactly what I need to hear, and I will respond to whatever it is you're calling me to. I think, I think that we are not open. I think that we prohibit the spirit of God for moving among us because we have so preconditioned what Christianity looks like in North America. And I think that we are, I think that we are in some ways muzzling or quenching the spirit of God, which Jesus forbids very harshly. Sure. Which is interesting uh, that he, that Jesus forbids the quenching of the spirit of God. And I think, I think, I think that's the problem with religion. Religion at its worst sets up systems where God can only speak and act in this way. This honestly, Jeremy, is part of my problem. When I hear people talk about the character character of God in a very hard, fast way, I get anxious. Not because I don't think that, not because I think God does not have some sort of consistent character, but it's because it's so easy for us to fashion, it's, it's easier for us to fashion God in our image than for us to actually empty ourselves of all of our graven images and just hear plainly what God would say to us. That's very, very difficult. And this and it's hard to be the prophet, if we're just honest, because it could mean my job. 
It could mean my oh, it's incredibly, standing in the community. It's incredibly difficult to be a pastor. And quite honestly, I've not told people the truth sometimes. Sure. Because I didn't want to deal with the fallout. Yep. And we've even had conversations about that. And yeah. as far as even the podcast, like, what do we want to talk about? Are we sure we want to go there? Because Well, you can't could... say some things. You can't say some things because it's just politically coded. And um, I, I preached a sermon just a couple of sermons ago that I preached. And I was having a conversation with this guy afterwards, and uh, he was um, a very, very staunch uh, conservative Republican, and started talking to me about how I was um, advocating entitlements for people um, through socialism. And I said, "You got to, you got to back up, man. You got to, you got to tell me where in the world did you did you get that? Because I got to tell you, friend, I've studied." And socialism is the furthest thing that I would want for America. So you got to tell, you got to help me. And he said, "Oh, you don't, you don't like socialism." I said, oh. "I was like, no, please tell me." And so he told me this line that I said from the sermon. I forget what it was. And now he had just because that line is so politically charged for him, he had just taken it to, he had taken it to the end of me saying, "Well, Jonathan's a socialist. He's a super liberal," yep. and. and I was, I was essentially, all I was doing was communicating the word of God as it's found in Amos. Sure. You know what I'm saying? I had absolutely nothing to do with modern politics, but this is what we do. Right. It's so hard. It's so hard to empty ourselves of our own agenda to hear anything from the word of God. My prayer for the church of North America, for the, for the evangelicals, for us, is really that we are able in these days, in these last days, can I say that these last days? They're the yeah. last days I'm going to know, yeah. you know, that in these last days that we get to a place of humility where we're able to receive when the spirit of God speaks to us, that we repent from our pretenses, that we remove all of the prerequisites for God to speak, that we get, that we get rid of our social identity and our political ideology and even our even our religious uh, tendencies and that we just open ourselves and avail ourselves to the spirit of God the spirit that was promised to be poured out indiscriminately in the last days and I think that the only thing I would add is that we once again just always understand that to have that heart, is a continual journey. It's a never ending process of yearning and, and praying and begging that God would, would pour it out his spirit on us. I press on toward the goal. Press on toward the goal. And, and so I I hope we all take that to heart. I know that, that for me, um, even just having this conversation is just once again in my own life has, reignited and 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 called me back to to keeping the main thing the main thing and and not letting all of the the things of the world press in on me but once again forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead to be who God's called us um, in Christ Jesus to be if you'd like to connect with us look us up on Twitter at Jonathan Berkey and at Thompson seven Jeremy the evangelicals podcast is recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio.